Well, good morning, everyone. We are uh, working our way through the book of Genesis, so if you will open to Genesis chapter 24. Our text for this morning is the the entirety of the chapter, but I want to uh, read for us beginning in verse 34. Genesis chapter 24, beginning at verse 34. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house, to my clan, and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord, before whom I have walked, will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan, and if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, Behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, Please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, Drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder. And she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. Then I said to her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for my son. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would be honored in this time this morning, that you would minister to us by your Spirit, through your Word. We pray that you would help us to look into this lengthy account of a man selecting, finding a a wife for his master's son. I pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. We pray for your blessing today in Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage today is a, uh, a long one, and we will not be looking at every verse. That's, that's not typically how we do it, but we're going to work our way through this story and uh, try and uh, see what it is the Lord has for us here. And before we do that, I wanted to let you know uh, who this sermon is for. It's for the person going through things, going through stuff in life. It can be painful, perhaps confusing, uh, perhaps uh, seemingly insurmountable. This chapter and this message today is for that person 
This may be for the person who is not really going through the ringer right now, maybe not facing those difficulties, but we know who have lived the Christian life long enough that we're usually coming out of something momentous or we're in the midst of something momentous or perhaps we're heading towards something momentous. And this message is for you as well to file away, to keep in your mind, to have an understanding of how God works in life so that when the difficulty does come, even if you're not in the midst of it right now, that you will have instruction from God's Word. You will have a a better understanding of how it is God's invisible providence works in our lives. And so we're going to work our way through our passage relatively quickly today, but before we get to uh, the beginning of our chapter, I thought it would be important for us once again to define what I mean by providence. The title of our message today is Invisible Providence. Providence can be defined very simply in this way. The world and our lives are ruled not by chance and fate, but by God. God is the one who rules in our lives. God is the one who rules in the world. Not blind chance, not some impersonal fate, but it is God. And I've called the message invisible providence because so often in life we just don't see what the Lord is doing. We just don't see Him at work. And we're visual people, and we like to keep an eye on things, and we often interpret uh, what we see better than we interpret all that's going on. And in this passage, we see God's providential hand at work, but it's invisible on the surface of the text. And so, what's going on in Genesis chapter 24? What, what's, the, what's the concern? What's the, what's the problem? Well, we see when we look at um, the first paragraph there that Abraham has gotten old and well advanced in years, and the Lord's blessed him in all kinds of ways, but Isaac, his son, does not have a wife. He has one son who is his heir. He has one son through whom promises will be fulfilled. He's got one son who will bear uh, offspring that will become eventually a nation, and that son doesn't have a wife. So he's stuck. And so Abraham calls to himself his servant, verse 2, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had. So this is an important man, this servant. He's never named, but you see as you watch him that he's quite a servant. He's quite a man. The things he's able to accomplish, the faith that he shows, the way God uses him is impressive, but he's just called Abraham's servant. We don't know a ton about him, but he calls him to himself. And he says a very interesting thing in verse 2. He says, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. So he calls him to himself and he, he says, put your hand under my thigh. I'm going to make you swear an oath. Well, we're familiar with maybe putting your hand on the Bible and raising your other hand and swearing an oath or, or something like that. But this is, this is a particular kind of oath that's being sworn. We see it come up again in Genesis chapter 47 where Jacob does the same thing with Joseph. And the hand is placed under the thigh because of the proximity to regeneration or I should say reproduction. There's a, it's, it's an intimate kind of oath. It's connected with the children who will come. It's connected with offspring. It may even be a euphemistic expression, but it's connected with progeny. The oath that's going to be sworn has to do with future generations. And so he has him place his hand there to swear this oath. And he says, I want you to swear that you're not going to take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites. 
among whom I dwell. But instead, verse 4, will go to my country, to my kindred, and take a wife for my son Isaac. Go back to where I'm from. Go back to where my people are and take, take a wife from there. This is a, a, a custom called endogamy where one marries from within their own clan. And that can be uh, very prevalent in the ancient Near East and it can have all kinds of reasons, whether financial reasons or uh, squabbles between different clans. And so you don't want to marry the enemy clan and stuff like that. But here it seems to have to do with religious purity. Go back to my people, not like these people who surround us in Canaan. We don't want to be like them. We don't want to intermarry with them. We don't want to become aligned with them. We don't want to be confused with them, but instead go back to my people and take a wife from there. And then, of course, the, as we read later on in the chapter, the, the servant, who's a very smart man, clearly says, well, what if they won't send her back here? What if I can't bring her back? Shall I take Isaac there? Abraham says, by no means. Isaac's to stay here in this land. He's not to leave this land and go back to find a wife. And in referencing Isaac staying there in the land, he, he refers back to a promise that God had made. We see there in verse 7, the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, who spoke to me and swore to me this promise, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. Isaac is tied to this land. He's not to leave, but God will send his angel before you to find the woman and bring her back. So the problem is that a wife is needed. Isaac is supposed to have all these offspring. He's to, he's to have offspring like the sand of the seashore, and yet he's not even married, so that's not going to happen. That's the problem. So Abraham goes to resolve this problem of a wife needed, and he grabs his servant has him swear this oath, and is going to send him away. Now, the journey is some few hundred miles to go back to Nahor and, uh, and find his people. And that's uh, the, the servant takes off on his journey, having sworn the oath. Verse 10 is all we hear about the journey. The servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, took all sorts of choice gifts from his master, and he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. That's all that's mentioned about the journey. Some hundreds of miles to go to the right place to do this journey that is fraught with dangers of various sorts. It probably wasn't just uh, the servant with the ten camels that he's got all strung together. There's probably a whole entourage that goes there, but nevertheless, he goes, he travels, and he arrives at the city of Nahor, uh, where he's going to see if he can find Abraham's people. Look at verse 12. The servant said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. So the servant arrives in Nahor. He arrives there by the, by the well, and you can kind of picture the scene. There's this well that would be outside of the village, outside of the city, and uh, that's where the young women would go uh, early in the morning and and towards the evening, go down there to draw water so it's not in the heat of the day. Uh, they would probably go together so that they would be safe and, and things like that. But he shows up. He rolls up with these ten camels, this whole uh, string, this whole entourage, and he has them kneel right there by the water. And then he waits. And he prays this prayer. And he asks that the Lord would send a particular woman so that when I say, may I have a drink, she will say, sure, and let me water your camels too. Let her be the one. And then, Lord, I will know that you have prospered my way. So that's the prayer that he offers. You can see the man's faith showing itself already, that he's journeyed these hundreds of miles. He's, he's gone in search of these people, and now he arrives in town. 
And he doesn't go to the Chamber of Commerce. He doesn't go to the local headman to, to, to query and find out, uh, you know, Abraham's relatives or any of that stuff. He goes to the well and he prays a prayer. Verse 15, before he had finished speaking, Behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. So she shows up, a young woman named Rebekah of the right family. She shows up, got the water jar on her shoulder, and the young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known, a likely candidate. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. He's acting on what he prayed about. And she said, Drink, my Lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. You can see her exemplary character showing itself already. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Now, we don't live in a camel culture. Um, we don't, you know, we're not familiar with uh, what camels drink, how much they drink, and what ten of them, you know, watering ten of them would, would be like. And we don't really know how much they would have, would have drunk, but they can drink up to 25 gallons. So if you look at a 55-gallon drum, that's two camels worth. She's got a jar that probably holds about three gallons. So she's volunteering herself to water these camels. This could be as much as 250 gallons of water that she's going to carry, three gallons at a time. So she's offering a big thing. This isn't just, uh, would you like fries with that? Yeah, I can get you fries. Right? She's offering, you know, the next hour she's going to be laboring to, to water these camels. So she quickly, we see her character again, she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all the camels. We see her character showing itself, that she responds quickly. She responds with generosity. She's very hospitable that she runs to do this, and she quickly does this, and she offers more. And she offers to, to water his camels, not just, yeah, your camels can have a drink, but until they're, until they're not thirsty anymore. I'll water them all the way. And so she's, she's really um, demonstrating an exemplary character. What's interesting, you see verse 21, you've got the, this wise old servant who has prayed, he's trusted the Lord with this situation, a woman has shown up and so far so good, but maybe she's going to bail partway through watering the camels because she realizes she probably shouldn't have offered that, too much work. <laughs> and so he's watching her. You see verse 21, the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. He's just watching to see. You know, she's spoken bold words and she's done a little bit of work. And she's run here and she's done that. She's offered a great thing, but how's she going to complete it? He's watching to see whether indeed she is the one, whether God has prospered his journey or not. And we see there, when we look at verse 22, his response. When the camels had finished drinking, again, could have been an hour of work. We, we don't know. It could have been 10 minutes. But when they had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel, two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels. So he's going to give her these gifts. He's going to bless her. He's going to begin the negotiations, as it were. He's recognizing that there's something special about her. And then he asks her identity because it still needs to be from Abraham's people. She may or may not be the right one, but he asks her in verse 23, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? So he inquires and find, to find out who she is, and she says, verse 24, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. And then she adds, verse 25, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. 
She's from the right people. She has the right kind of character. She's beautiful. She's young. She's never been with a man. She's available. She seems like a likely candidate. And so uh, the man is uh, excited to hear this. The man bows his head. You see verse 26. You see his, his response. And it, I love this. We don't know the man's name. And he's just a servant. And he's the oldest servant, yeah, and he's put in charge of all things. He's like the steward. But you see his faith in that he showed up and he prayed a prayer and then he watched to see if God was answering the prayer. And then when he sees that he has, he looks in verse 26, and the man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord. He responds when he sees answered prayer. Worships God and he said, Blessed be the Lord, verse 27, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. So he stops and he praises God for answered prayer. He acknowledges right there that he sees signs. He sees evidence that God is already at work in providing. Providing a wife for his master's son. And so verse 28, she runs and she tells her family. But what an interesting thing that he has shown up and God has answered in such a miraculous way that she would have such character, that she would be, she would be such a woman. And in, in, in this whole process, we don't see God's active hand. We don't see God speaking. We don't see God doing we don't see, and the Lord brought this, and the Lord rained fire, and the Lord changed that, and the Lord did this. We just see the camera focused on Nahor, and we see God answering prayer. We see things working out in a particular way, and it is God who is at work accomplishing that, though we don't see his hand. So she runs and she tells her family, what, a, what an exemplary young woman of character, Rebecca, appears to be. And we're going to see her faith and her courage, starting at verse 29. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. We're going to learn more about Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebecca, his sister, Thus the man has spoken to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring, and he said, Come in, blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels, and there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. So it's interesting when you contrast Rebecca with her brother. Right? You can often learn a lot about a person by examining their family. Right? When you, when you uh, were first courting your spouse and you got to meet mom and dad, you got to meet siblings, you began to see a picture of what your, uh, what your beloved is like because you can see what the whole family is like. Here you have a very interesting story of Rebecca being quite the opposite of Laban. Laban runs out too. He's full of energy too. But what's his motivation? He's not seeking to provide hospitality. He's not seeking to take care of a weary traveler. He's not offering to, uh, to labor to water these camels at his own expense. Instead, he looks and he sees the riches. He sees the potential. He sees the business deal. And that motivates him. And so he runs out and he's going to take care of this. He's going to enter in and and, and I was, as I'm thinking through this, I thought of normally, you know, we, we sort of represent our families. We're like our family. We may be different in some ways, but you can kind of see how the whole thing fits, right? You can see how we're like our parents or our children are like us. And here you've got Rebecca who has such exemplary character, and then there's Laban. And in contrast to Laban, she really stands out. She is a very unique character compared to Laban. And, of course, Laban is going to show up uh, later in the story uh, with Jacob, and, and we're going to see uh, further development of what he's like. But in this picture, in this image, we see that she is very different 
from her brother. And so uh, the, the uh, Laban, the brother, and the servant meet, and um, they're going to uh, serve them dinner. And so the food was set before them, verse 33. But he said, he said no, I, I have business to attend to. Before I feed myself, I need to take care of this. He, he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. And so he said, speak on. And then we have the passage that we read earlier where the servant recounts his whole journey, recounts the whole problem. But now he's speaking to the people uh, who have the, the ability to meet this need. My master's son, Isaac, is in need of a wife, and he sent me back. He had me swear solemnly that I would go back to his people to find a wife for his son. So here I am, and here's my journey, and this is what happened. And by the way, when I showed up in town, here's what went on. My camels and I pulled up, and we stopped at the well, had them kneel down, and I prayed a prayer, and I said, Lord... If a young woman comes out and I ask her to give me a drink and she says, sure, have a drink, and by the way, I'll water your camels, may she be the one. That's the prayer I prayed. Remember, I was sent by Abraham. Abraham's rich, by the way. Did I tell you how much money he has? Did I tell you how much God has blessed him? Did I tell you, by the way, that he has only one son who will inherit? That one son will inherit everything that he has. And it's that son that I'm looking for a wife for. He's, he's, he's sweetening the deal a little bit. He's wanting them to understand what's going on. He's wanting them to understand uh, exactly the import and what's involved in his message. So he's not just bare bones. He's not just describing. He's not just explaining. He wants them to understand, my master is a great man. And he is looking for someone to marry his only son who's going to inherit everything. I wonder if I can find such a woman amongst your family. And so he spells out this story. And as you're reading through this, you've read Genesis chapter 24 before. And, and when you're reading through it, you, you hear the same story over and over, right? You hear, you hear the servant praying the prayer. I mean, you read about the events that are going on. The servant prays the prayer. And he says, Lord, you know, let it be this way. And then just a couple of verses later, you read the story of, it being that way. And then just a few verses later, he's describing to Rebecca's family the prayer and how the story shook out. And it was that way. It's a repetition and it's on purpose. And you can see that God is at work in putting this together and the servant wants Rebecca's family to understand that God is putting this together. Not only is he sweetening the deal, not only is he making clear that my master's very rich, and he's got one son who needs a wife, and he's looking for a wife from amongst his people, which seems to be you. Not only is he sweetening the deal, but he also wants them to understand, I sought the Lord in regard to this, and the Lord did these things. This was my prayer, and these were the events. Ask Rebecca how it shook out. He wants them to understand that God is in this thing. And he he tells them all that. He explains all that. In verse 49, he basically says, what do you think? What's your response? Verse 49, now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. I will take my offer elsewhere. I will keep looking. The Lord has done this. My master has sent me to do this. And here I am. What do you think? What's going to be your response? And then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you good, bad, or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go. Let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. So even Laban and Bethuel, uh, we don't hear much about him. We don't, he's not talked about all that much. He's put second after the son. He seems to be of less importance. He's not the leader of the family. Laban's the leader of the family. And Laban, even though he's so motivated by uh, personal gain and whatnot, you know, you'd think he would try and swing a deal, but he doesn't. He says, clearly this is from God. The Lord has put this together, so yeah, you can take her. It seems like it's from God. Who are we to stand in the way? Now, we're going to see in a little bit, he's going to try to stand in the way a little bit. <laughs> 
there's a buck to be made here, and he's, he's going to try and do that in a little bit, but, but he sees what's going on. Even he sees the hand of God in this, putting these circumstances together, that God is in this, and so who are we to stand against it? Can you imagine the scene? Dinner's been laid out. The servant and his men have been journeying all this time. They finally get to eat a, you know, a home-cooked meal kind of thing. Their feet are washed. They're ready to go. But before they even eat, he explains this story, and they go through this whole account, and now they've said, yes, you can take her. And what's his response? Amen. Let's, let's eat. You know, it's dinner time. No, we see his response in verse 52. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. He responds in worship again. He recognizes another aspect of God's work in this story. And he stops and he praises God. I think one of the, one of the things that we forget about when we talk about prayer and the value of prayer, one of the aspects that, that we need to be reminded of, the value of prayer, is that it makes us attentive for when God does answer prayer. That when God answers prayer, we are now attuned to that. And we've been counting on Him. We've been trusting Him. We've been expecting Him to answer We've been asking Him to answer and asking Him to provide, asking Him to work. And when we do that, we are primed to see it. And we ought to respond like Abraham's servant in, in praise and worship, recognizing that God is at work. I think one of our, one of our problems that we have is that we're, we're all too often ungrateful. We don't want to recognize or we're, we're not prepared to recognize God at work and His gracious, abundant provision in everyday stuff. And we need to give Him thanks. We need to worship Him for that. And so this servant does exactly that. He bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments and he and the men who were with him ate and drank and they spent the night there so he concludes his business worships God gives out the gifts that he wants to give to these people and then he stays the night so the story is advancing the story is going on and it seems like it's all wrapped up but of course Laban being involved, it's not all wrapped up. Halfway through verse 54, you see, when they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she, she may go. Now, that's a figure of speech, at least 10 days. It means like a day or 10. Stay a while. Could be a year. Could be a month. Could be this week. Right? Let her stay along. We're not ready to let her go yet. Let her stay a while, and then after that, she can go. But he said, no, don't delay me. Since the Lord has prospered my way, send me away that I may go to my master. So he wants to finish the deal. He wants to take Rebecca and he wants to go back. And you begin to see Laban and, and the mom involved a little bit in trying to, to, to alter the situation a little bit, somehow take advantage of, of the situation that they're in. But look what they do in verse 57. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her, this is, where, this is where we see a peek at Rebecca's faith and courage. They call the woman, they ask her, verse 58, and they called Rebecca, said to her, will you go with this man? She met him yesterday, and she watered his camels. She's heard the story. That's about all she knows. And she says, I will go. Simple obedient, trusting the Lord, I will go. She doesn't haggle. She doesn't uh, try to argue for something better. She doesn't hem and haw. She doesn't say, give me a month and I'll figure it out. 
Similar to how we read about Abraham back in chapter 12. She hears the call and she responds. Abraham hears the call back in chapter 12 and he goes. Rebecca is like, like a new Abraham, responding with faith and courage. And what courage it took to, to go back with this whole entourage to a place she's never been before, to a people she's never met before, all on the word of this man. And he's given gifts and he's talked to him and explained and all that. But she agrees very simply, very boldly, very courageously, and she says, I will go. That's impressive. She's a young woman. She's a beautiful young woman. She signs up to go because of faith. You can see the hand of God at work. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, verse 59, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. They blessed Rebekah and said to her something that sounds familiar. Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. So they pronounce a blessing on her. They send her on her way, and she goes. And we see the resolution. We see marriage, love, and comfort uh, is the resolution of this. It's a a relatively simple story. We start in verse 63, Isaac uh, flashing back to Isaac, who's now been back in the land. He went out to meditate in the field toward evening. He lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil, which she had not been wearing, and she covered herself. The servant told Isaac all the things that he had done, and then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So that's the whole story. Now, what are we to learn from that? What are we to take away from that in, in our day and age? Are we, are we given instruction here on how it is we ought to arrange marriages? No. I mean, if we seek to do that, there's probably good information here. If, if uh, we're looking to understand how romance works, I don't know that we're going to find it here at all. He married her and then he loved her. <laughs> That's not really the typical romance story. What are we to learn? Why is this whole story here? Well, you can see in the broad picture that Isaac had to have a wife in order to bear offspring. But why is the story told this way? Why is it developed in such a way? Well, I have a couple of ideas, and this, this kind of can go in the implications. The, the problem that Abraham was up against in his life was that he and his wife could not have children. And so the story develops chapter after chapter after chapter, and that's the problem that God is overcoming, is that they can't have children, yet He promised them, we will give, I will give them children. That's what's being overcome in Abraham's life. Well, Isaac's life isn't like that. What's Isaac's problem? He's all alone, and there's not, there's not a marriageable woman in sight. So he can't have children either, for a different reason. And so you see the development of this throughout this story, and that's part of the reason it's so... Such detail is given, but that's only a small part of it. I think a larger part of it is that this story is told so that we can see God's invisible hand at work, providing, arranging, leading, blessing, why, why do you and I need to hear that? Why is it important for, for you and me to hear that God works in that way? Well, we don't see God speak in this chapter. He doesn't come on the scene and says, okay, uh, servant of Abraham, go do this and I will bless your way. He doesn't even tell Abraham, hey, do this thing. God is off the scene, as it were. God is off camera. We don't see him actively at work. We only see the effects of God working. By the way, folks, that is our life. That is our life. We see the effects of what God does. We hear God speak when we open His Word, but in our own lives, in our own circumstances, 
We see the effects of what he does, but we don't see his hand at work. All too often, we, we pass right by what God is doing because it's just his fingerprint and not his finger. And I think this story is told for us in part to remind us of that, that all throughout Scripture we can see the effects of what God is doing. And we have the perspective looking back thousands of years later. The New Testament has perspective looking back thousands of years later to be able to look at that circumstance and see that God was doing this, this, and this in a way that the, the man on the ground at the time could not see. Yet, was God at work? God was at work. But you and I are in a situation where we, the camera is here. What is God doing? We don't know. We don't really know what God is doing. Sometimes you can see a clear thing happening when, when, when hundreds of people come to Christ and, 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 and lives are changed and towns are changed. You can see God actively working. But most of our life is going to work Monday morning. It's living our lives, parenting our children, dealing with the bills, um, you know, working in, in our culture. What is God doing? I don't know. But here's what I do know. We can trust the God who is doing. Just like this servant of Abraham could trust the God of his master, that he was at work, that he was accomplishing his purposes, that his steadfast love had not passed away, that God's loyalty to his people is still in action. And I can take comfort from that, though all I see is the occasional fingerprint. I can take comfort from those truths, though I don't see the active hand of God all too often in my life. That's a, another implication. But there's a, there's a third implication for why this passage is told the way it's told, why it's included in the Bible, and that's this. God provides for Isaac's seed. Where there had been no woman and no chance for him to have a child, where there had been no wife and no likely wife available, and thus Isaac would die alone, not having children, God provides for Isaac's seed. It's, it's easy to lose sight in this detailed chapter that's relatively long. It's easy to lose sight of the larger picture of what's going on, but, but, but God's promise in verse 7, to your offspring I will give this land, means that there must be offspring. Well, maybe Isaac's the offspring. But then we look back at God's promise in chapter 13 and verse 16 that Abraham's offspring will be as the dust of the earth or the stars of the heavens. There's got to be more than one offspring. Isaac has to have children in order for that to be fulfilled. The offspring are at stake. The nation's existence is at stake in this chapter. It, it, it hangs on whether Isaac can find a wife. Will, will the promise dead end in him? Will, will God not fulfill his word? Well, of course, we know from where we sit because we've read stories like this. We've read the rest of the Bible that God always fulfills His Word. He always keeps His promises. But in the moment, God has said this, but the, the contrary seems to be the case. Isaac is not married. He can't have children. He can't become like the stars of the heavens or the dust of the earth. There must be more than Isaac. That's what's at stake. The very nation's existence is at stake. And even more than that, we who read from the perspective of the New Testament and see that this, this seed that's being referenced throughout this whole book is also a reference to Christ, the one seed who comes from the nation of Israel. His very existence, His very conception is at stake. What's at stake in Isaac not finding a wife? Salvation is at stake in Isaac not finding a wife. And so when we read it, we need to understand that the stakes are a lot higher than we imagined that they were. The Messiah's existence is at stake. If he doesn't find a wife, there will be no Jesus born in Bethlehem who will walk in accordance with all God's laws, thus fulfilling God's requirements for eternal life. Where would you be without that? You'd be in your sins. 
you would have to stand before God with your own record. If Isaac doesn't find a wife, there will be no spotless lamb to go to the cross to take the full punishment and wrath of God for your sins. Where would you be without that? That's what's at stake. You would still be in your sins. If Isaac doesn't find a wife, there will be no resurrection on the third day, no hope for salvation, resurrection, eternal life for you, for me. That's what's at stake. If Isaac doesn't find a wife, Jesus is at stake. And so this chapter is far more than just a unique tale of uh, cultural oddities about how arranged marriages were arrived at and, and things like that. It goes so much beyond that. At stake is everything that is ours in Christ, and we ought to read it that way. What's the application for us as we close? First of all, take comfort in God's providence that directs all human history. When you look at history and you look at the course of the world, do you take comfort? Probably not. Right? We bemoan the course of history right now. We bemoan the direction things are going. We bemoan what's going on, and, 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 and rightly so, because there's a lot of evil in the world, and, and it seems like it's multiplying. Right? So we, we, we look at that, but at the same time, are we alone in that? Or do we understand that there is God over all of that, superintending and acting over all of that, so that even in the midst of the, of the evil and the chaos and the challenges and the, and the persecution and whatever goes on, even in the midst of that, we can realize, but God is over that. And according to Ephesians 1.11, He works all things according to the counsel of His will. And so though I don't like this circumstance, I love and trust the God who is over all circumstances. And so I can take comfort even in the midst of the world and the way it's going. Secondly, take comfort in the fact that God's steadfast love and loyalty shows itself in His providential care for His people, particularly. That He's not just governing the world. He's not just in charge of large events. He's not just in charge of faraway things and big people and, and wars and, and stuff like that. But His, his involvement is much more personal for his people. That he says he will work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That he has, he has an end goal that is good for the Christian. And he is actively working to bring that about. That he is working all things together, not just generally speaking in history according to the counsel of his will, but specifically for you, Christian, for your good, particularly that you would be conformed into the image of Christ. So when you go through life and you face circumstances in your own life and your own struggles that you come up against and maybe relationships that are difficult or maybe, maybe uncertainty about decisions to make or, or things that are going to happen to you that you have no control of but will have major influence in your life, how can you take comfort in the midst of that? You can take comfort knowing that God who loves you and gave His Son for you is working that circumstance and all others together for your good, that you would be made more and more like Christ, which is what the Christian wants. So I can take comfort, even in the face of hardship, even in the face of uncertainty, even in the face of difficulty, that God is at work and it benefits me. It benefits you, Christian. Is that comforting? That ought to be comforting. That ought to be something that wakes us up in the morning. That ought to be something that helps us to face difficulty, to face uncertainty, to face difficult people, to face difficult circumstances, to face hardship, to face illness, to face all the things in life that we face that we would rather not. I can do so because that is my God. And that is his commitment to me. That's his commitment, Christian.
isn't it great to be a Christian? Well, I could go on. I won't do so, but I want to end with that encouragement. As I read through Genesis chapter 24, I see God's fingerprints, though I don't see His, his fingers. I see Him at work. I see Him accomplishing, but He's, but he's off camera. Well, folks, He's off camera for us. We can read about things He's done. We can read about things He's going to do, but, but we don't look around and see Him. Usually, we're in a situation where we're just going through life. And sometimes that life we're going through is fraught with difficulty and pitfalls. But you and I, Christian, have this God as our God. He is at work in all of history. And His providential hand is at work in your own life to accomplish good for you. So take comfort in that. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that we have Your Word open in front of us. We are grateful that You have been at work, though we so often don't see it. And this, this account is one of those. We see evidences. We see, we see You accomplishing things. You see, we see You leading a, a man who was a faithful servant of Abraham, a faithful servant of Yours, and, and accomplishing great things. But, but You were off scene. And yet You were just as actively at work. And Father, we confess that we can be tempted to lose heart in our own circumstances, whether it's a health circumstance, a financial circumstance, a difficult decision, or maybe some other struggle, maybe, maybe something we've run up against in life that we would just rather were not there. And in that circumstance, we can be very tempted to look around and wonder, where are you? And what are you doing? Father, I pray that this passage would remind us that you are indeed at work, even if we don't see your hand. Father, we entrust ourselves to you, and we take comfort in knowing you, and we, we have the greatest joy of Jesus, our Savior, that you did provide a wife for Isaac, and they did have children, and you did bring about a nation, and in that nation you did bring the Messiah who did obey you always, perfectly, obtaining the rights to eternal life and then giving himself to die in the place of those who should have died. And you raised him from the dead, that we, by faith in him, have life, have righteousness credited to us, have sins forgiven, have hope for now and for all eternity because of your providence. So, Father, we praise you. May we go forth in joy. May we face our difficulties with renewed vigor and, and, uh, and confidence in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There will be a family up front to pray with you if you would like to do so. I would encourage you, again, about our evening service. We're meeting in the conference room over here. Otherwise, God bless you all, and you are dismissed. <laughs>